0: Last week, in the first two of these 2015 Lyle lectures, I tried to examine two textual objects, both of which were resistant to ordinary bibliographical analysis, but resistant in different ways. The first of these objects, as you may recall, was a fully engraved book. The second one was a color plate book of the fishes of the Indian Ocean. My program in these lectures is to try to extend the reach of bibliography by placing it in creative and productive dialogue with the rest of the humanities and in particular, the other object-oriented disciplines, art history, anthropology, archeology, span museum studies, and so on. Today, I'd like to look at a third object, an object that truly changed the world. I'd like to examine today, the proliferation of the image of the slave ship Brooks, the kind of icon, if you will, of the English movement for the abolition of the slave trade. In doing so, I seek not to examine merely one originary moment, but rather to try to understand the complex and rich business of textual transmission over time. For it seems to me that it is part and parcel the business of bibliography and book history not only to prize and to scrutinize the originary textual artifact, but to examine carefully and with humility the historical transmission of that text over time in order in part to understand its ongoing reception. For it seems to me that transmission history and reception history are near allied. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is Bob Marley's 1979 album, Survival. You will note the 48 African flags here 14 of which are now no longer valid and the flag of Papua new guinea some of you will be upset that marley's people made an error and the flag of tanzania is upside down none of this is the principal point rather when marley was trying to seek a way to capture the pan-african experience he seized upon the image of the slave ship Brooks. And this image has a kind of universal currency I submit to you both commercially and artistically, and I think it's part of the business of bibliography to understand how an image became an icon over time. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the image, or perhaps an image, of the slave ship Brooks. Notice how the individuals are packed like so many sardines, like figs in a box, as one contemporary observed, to illustrate the horrors of the middle passage. This harrowing image is one we know very well indeed, but we should not be inured to what it truly signifies. The story that I would like to tell today is about the development, distribution, and efflorescence of this image. Ladies and gentlemen, This is Malcolm Bailey's 1969 painting, Hold, Separate but Equal. This painting is in MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and it was produced to show the utter fatuousness of the American legal doctrine of separate but equal. (laughs) But note that Bailey evokes the slave ship. Barry Unsworth's 1992 novel about the slave trade, Sacred Hunger, which in 1993 won the Booker Prize, Ex Echo with Michael Ondachi's The English Pacing. Again, the use of the slave ship for commercial purposes, rather like Marley's adducing of it. And here, most controversially of all, Hank Willis Thomas's 2003 pseudo absolute ad in which the absolute bottle is turned into an image of a slave ship Brooks and given that paradoxical troubling caption, absolute power. If we wish to understand the origins of this image that has attained a kind of universal cultural currency, we must begin, strangely enough, with a Plymouth banker, a man named William Elford. Elford was from one of the oldest and most distinguished families in Devonshire. And he was a man of great personal distinction and true attainment himself. He was a fellow of the Royal Society. He was a fellow of the Linnaean Society. A gifted amateur artist, he was a fellow of the Royal Academy. He was, they said in Bath, the best whist player in all of England. (laughs) It is Elford the chairman of the Plymouth Society for the Abolition of Slavery, to whom we owe our gratitude, for it is he who developed the image of the slave ship Brooks. The originary image comes not from the London Committee for the Abolition of Slavery, as many believe, but rather from the Provincial Plymouth Committee. And Mr. Elford and his friends, had a grave difficulty on their hands. Between 1750 and 1800, ladies and gentlemen, British ships transported 1.5 million Africans into slavery. The documents, the business papers, are scrupulously recorded. We know that in the beginning of this period there was a 12% loss rate, read death rate during passage, and by the end conditions had improved so much to make the loss rate about 8%. Further men and women died during the so-called period of seasoning when they came on board land. But the important point to remember is that many Many believed that slavery was absolutely essential to the operation of the British economy, and that the movement for the abolition of the trade was somehow unpatriotic, for after all, if the high-minded Britons abolished the trade, wouldn't the French simply take their place? Wouldn't the Portuguese merely fill the gap in the market? How then? to dramatize the human horrors of the slave trade well it turns out that Elford was friends with William Pitt the Younger and William Pitt the Younger was the Prime Minister and in July of 1788 the Parliament had passed the Dolben Act named after Sir William Dolben MP for Oxford and the Dolben Act stated that it was inhumane to pack your slave ship too much and that now the slave trade would be regulated only only three slaves for every five tons and this was meant to be a kind of humane measure In order to enforce the Dolben Act, William Pitt the Younger sent one Captain Parry of the Royal Navy to the epicenter of the British slave trade, Liverpool. And under his authorization, Captain Parry took detailed measurements of nine slave ships. William Pitt the Younger leaked those measurements to William Elford. And Elford decided that he would take the first ship on the list, the Brooks, a Guineaman of 297 tons, not the largest ship on the list and neither the smallest, but because it was first this would be the one that could be taken as representative of the whole. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the originary image of the slave ship Brooks. This copy in the New York Historical uh, Society Library is the only copy in North America. There are four surviving copies in this country as well. Please Note how the individuals are packed together, segregated by age and by gender, as was the common practice. And it is important to note, I think, here, the plan of the African ship's lower decks with the Negroes in the proportion of not quite one to a ton. Now remember, the Dolben Act provided for three slaves for every five tons. This ship is 40% less packed than the Dolben Act permits. And I think this is very important. Mm -hmm. People forget that Elford's great design is not merely an image, and you can see the letter press behind, but is accompanied, I give you the first and last page of the four-page pamphlet, is accompanied by 1,200 words of very carefully measured prose. So if we want to understand this artifact right away, we have to understand the interaction of word and image. And here, Alfred bravely, the banker, in Plymouth, signs his own name. And now, this gets sent to the London Committee. And they understand it right away. Because the vernacular of the image is taken from shipmates' manuals. Stowage diagrams. Only not barrels of water, not schemes for ballast, but human cargo. Human cargo. And this cargo here in the stowage diagram is the the visual vocabulary that Elford himself invokes. Enter Thomas Clarkson, who's really been present all along for he was one of the founders of the Plymouth Committee. And Clarkson is the most energetic leader of the London Committee for the Abolition of Slavery. And it is Clarkson who has spent the last seven years gathering evidence and building arguments against the slave trade. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the fair copy of the minute book in the the British Library of the London Committee. Remarkably, they receive the letter from the secretary of the Plymouth Committee, and immediately they do what every good academic group would do. They form another committee. (laughs) In this particular case, the power of the document seizes them, and they realize that it could be turned to their largest purpose of all, for William Wilberforce was moving toward speaking before the House and urging a deeper debate on the nature of the slave trade as he would do in May of 1789. Could this document, the London Committee wondered, not be repurposed in order to move matters forward and they follow its progress over the course of six weeks in their meeting? And then finally the document is ready in late April and they immediately order that all the members of parliament should receive copies at once. As a form of evidential argument about the enormities, the moral enormities, the human enormities of what would be debated. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this is the London Abolition Committee's plan of the slave ship Brooks. Please note, not one diagram, but seven diagrams. The full measurements, 25 separate measurements taken by Captain Parry of the Royal Navy, all delineated and in keeping with the much more forensic nature of this document for it is to go before lawmakers lawmakers many of whom have a contrary financial interest in the abolition of this trade not 12,000 words but 2,000 not 1,200 words but 2,500 words seven diagrams double the letter press calculated, absolutely calculated for a specific end. It is the case that one of the reasons for the success of the slave ship Brooks as a diagram is because of the testimony inserted in that letterpress, which we now neglect to the peril of our understanding, from Alexander Falconbridge, Physician who himself had made four voyages on a slaver and then had a change of heart. And he writes a book of testimony about what he had witnessed. It's also the case that part of the success of this document as it travels over time is because of the Quaker bookseller James Phillips, who is the, as it were, quarterback of the production and the distribution of all the abolition documents. And if we don't understand or come to a nearer understanding of Phillips' role in all this, we don't really understand why the image of the Brooks succeeded as it did. It is the case that if we consult the fair copy of the minute book of the London committee, we see that they ordered that there would be 1,700 copies produced from copper plate. And as you can see, an additional 7,000 made from wood. This, these wood copies are about speed. Wood copies come from letterpress. They are made from woodblock. Copper plate copies of course have to be made on a star press or a rolling press. They're more expensive to produce. They require a different kind of paper and they uh, require much more time, much more human labor. That is not the take home message here, however. It seems to me that we can only understand the production of the image of the Brooks in light of the activities of the committee. And here we see that the committee principally exists as a publishing arm of abolition. Here, 35,575 different items inventoried, that the committee is producing and keeping financial track of their expensive for 35,000 printed items. It is the case that if we go back 11 months into that same register of the minutes of this group we find an even greater sum almost 80,000 different printed items being produced by this group trying to educate the public, trying to lobby the public on behalf of the abolition of the trade. We tend to understand this document in isolation from all else that was produced. This is wrong, this is bibliographically naive. For we should understand this printed object in relation to all the other printed objects as part of a series, as part of a campaign. It is the case that you can't print 80,000 items and not have an important distribution network. Here in that same um, August of 88 portion of the minute book, they say, oh, let's print 3000 of this particular pamphlet. And here is the distribution list, very impressive. And, and the minute book is full of these distribution lists. However, it is not the case that necessary as it is that the London minute book is sufficient. One must walk down Euston road <laughs> to the friend's house library for there we discover That since 1784, a group of Quakers, and I want to be very clear, the London Committee is non-sectarian. It's it's composed of people of, of all different beliefs. The Quaker Committee for the Abolition of the Trade is a Quaker Committee. And that committee has been working since May of 1784 in order to build a distribution network, in order to extend the education and influence of their publishing program. And here you see the essential institutions, New Lloyds, the Aldermen, the different companies, the Royal Exchange, London Assurance, the West Indian Merchants, and so on. And if you piece together enough different folders in that library, you discover that here is the delineation of the men on their list at Lloyd's and at New Lloyd's. And here are the magistrates in the county of Kent. And here are the dissenting clergy in Suffolk. And here are the royal exchange assurance men. And here are the rectories and vicarages of Middlesex. And here are the contacts further afield. And this is just in 84. And this list builds and builds and builds. And without understanding the twin sides of both production and distribution, one cannot adequately comprehend the image of the slave ship Brooks and its efflorescence as a bibliographical object. The distribution network, the chain of transmission, is a bibliographical fact or a series of bibliographical facts that we ourselves must countenance and consider. And so here is what everybody was getting. And if we wish to understand this further, we should understand the visual vocabulary of this, much more sophisticated than just the shipmates assistant stowage diagram, but rather taken from the latest naval architecture, not only from Diderot's Encyclopédie, that sort of Bible of human reason, but also from naval architecture manuals. Meanwhile, back in Plymouth, Elford was not waiting around for the London men to get the job done, for he found himself in near proximity, within a hundred miles, of the other epicenter of the slave trade, Bristol. And so, he republishes his own diagram again, and you see it's reversed. The plate has been copied, and, but it bears the, the seal. Am I not a man and a brother of the London Committee? Meanwhile, in America the Irish immigrant publisher and great successor to Benjamin Franklin, Matthew Carey, who has built the largest print empire extant in young America, Matthew Carey receives from the London Committee a copy of Elford's original pamphlet. And he knows indeed what to do with it. For he publishes the American Museum, which is the most widely circulated periodical in young America. And here you see Philadelphia stretching all the way down to Georgia and all the way up to Massachusetts. And he has the distribution network. And now, here is the American landing of the slave ship. Brooks. And if we're thinking in our heads of a kind of schematics of the image, which I would urge you to do to think about the kind of family trees as they branch out of the publication of this image, then we need to know that because this is the image that lands in America in May of 89, it is the Bristol image, the Plymouth image, really, that becomes uh, the principal American instantiation of the slave ship for many years to come. But Carey himself was not acting in isolation, for he shared the pamphlet that he had received with the Philadelphia Committee, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, and they concomitantly, in fact, if the dates are to believe, because a local paper tells us that the American Museum came out on 1 June, and it is the case that a publication by the Pennsylvania Society comes out at the very end of May. And here you see the image of the Brooks with the accompanying letterpress slightly altered for May of 89. And what does the committee do? They print 2,500 of these at considerable expense, making an investment, a bet, a wager on the power of this print product. And what do they do? They send a copy to every member of Congress to the President of the United States of America, to all the governors. Their strategy mirrors, as it were, the strategy of the London Committee in sending copies to all the parliamentarians. And where was the capital of the United States of America in May 1789? Ah, New York City, not Philadelphia. New York City, there's one from New York, I insist on this. <laughs> so it is the case that soon after its publication, the image of the Brooks begins to become adopted by others. And here we see Charles Crawford's 1790 publication, Observations on Negro Slavery, in which, uh, which had been published eight years previously. And what does he do? He borrows the plate. And he puts at the very front of his, well, in chapter six, in this particular case, of his publication, a pullout making that investment. And over time, it becomes a kind of badge of honor, a kind of textual imprimatur, as you will see. They are placed nearly midway between the decks at a distance of two or three feet from each deck. And then he explains the annex plate is a copy. And at the end of this pamphlet, there's there's a... quite harrowing appeal to women readers. And the substance of that appeal is those who uh, are vulnerable to sexual violation themselves will understand how vulnerable to violation of all kinds these enslaved people are. Enter William Wilberforce who is preparing for his mid-May speech before the Parliament. And in helping Wilberforce to get ready, what does the committee do? They marshal up their arguments, and they look at the testimony that has come before, and they see that, one Mr. Norris and a series of other planters have said, oh, the middle passage isn't so bad. Now I can't prove that the improvement of the slave ship Brooks is in response directly to Norris' testimony. I'm having some difficulty establishing the chronology, but it seems to me that it very likely is. And so, in order to impress upon the parliament. They've already received those copper plate copies of the document, but what does Wilberforce do? He walks into the House of Commons and he puts in the opposition line a reification, a model of the slave ship book. And note if you will, Introducing this into the parliamentary chamber. What do you see? What do you see? You can see it even better in this old black and white photo. They have cut up a copy of the Brooks and pasted the men and women into the decks thereby reifying the two-dimensional image into a three-dimensional object in order to display what is at stake. And Wilberforce memorably encapsulates his whole argument into a single sentence. It is the case that the document we have seen is highly forensic And um, it is the case that there is a strategy again and again on the part of the committee of always going low so that they can never be accused of sensationalism. So in the voyage before (laughs) Parry measured the Brooks it carried 609 individuals and you see here that there are only 487 in the diagram so they can never be accused of hyping the argument. This is about a kind of scientific or forensic accuracy. Again, I think it's important for us to understand that as we understand the life of the document. Meanwhile, in 89, uh, Clarkson went to Paris and Clarkson, after he was there a little while, distributed French copies of the slave ship Brooks. I cannot find a single 1789 English printing in French of the Brooks, and if the Baker Street Irregulars could help me, I'd be enormously grateful. But here, Clarkson says in his History of the Abolition of the Trade, the section of the ship, it appeared, had been the means of drawing them toward me, for he had above a thousand sent to him in Paris course there were a few things going on in Paris in 1789 that might help account for for the difficulty in locating the ship. Meanwhile, the Dolben Act was a source of contention for some thought that it was a humane measure. After all, regulate the number of slaves. Others believed it was a kind of a moral palliative Just because this trade is regulated, it's not okay. We still need to eliminate it. And the slave ship Brooks participates in that debate as well. It is the case that um, Addison says... No man tells a story unless it redounds well to himself. Allow me, and uh, the Lyle electors might cover your ears now, if I tell a story that does not redound well to myself. I kept looking at the image in provincial instantiations or what I had hoped were provincial instantiations and it kept seeming, seeming to me like the same image over and over and over again. And then finally I came across this, this diary entry from Edinburgh which is significant in two counts. Of course they sent the blocks to Edinburgh, the image was the same. It had changed a little bit but not enough to imagine that the blocks were recarved. But it's also the case that the extraordinarily low survival rate of the image of the Brooks, despite our, our knowledge, our intimate knowledge of how many copies were printed when and where, is partly the case because they were clapped up everywhere. And of course, if it rains and they're put up outside pubs uh, or on walls of all kinds, eventually they will be destroyed. So this was a print product meant to be consumed to enliven the imaginations and then would be destroyed. And people began to co-opt the Brooks for a variety of purposes. Here, 1794, famous Wadstrom here, and you see he he changes the image, introducing a kind of narrative element in his essay on colonization. Here, blown up for you, this detail, in order to show an, an insurrection in the slave ship and people begin to make of the the document what they will. Here here is the slave trader reformed, a pathetic poem. Having read this document in the uh, Beinecke Library at Yale University, I can assure you it's pathetic in every sense that we might predicate the word. Um, But it is the case that here, sorry, here, very far in, here is a wood block Nothing to do with the poem at all. So what's this doing in here? Is it not partly a filler perhaps, but also partly to say, I can demonstrate whose side I'm on. This particular document is particularly interesting to me because it has a rather detailed description, uh, subscription list broken down by location. Very, very useful, including those, those who took the, took the publication in the slaving city of Newport, Rhode Island. And this happens again and again, the Mirror of Misery. And again and again now, the image of the Brooks appears increasingly with other abolition images. Um, Typically in the same production level so if the if wood block is used then the other images are wood, if if steel cut is used then they're steel and so on and again I think it's important that we think about the production methods and how those methods help to determine the content of the images themselves. Here in 1808 Clarkson himself publishes his triumphal, some may say triumphalistic a uh, two-volume history of the abolition of the slave trade after the successful passage of Parliament. The abolition of the trade, not of the institution. Uh, rather important, it seems to me. And um, here you can see flying like a, like a big flag out of, the, out of the book once you've folded it out. Here, carefully designed in the letterpress so that all the measurements will be readily available for consultation. And this becomes another commonplace, too. This book, of course, published in London, in Philadelphia, with many subsequent British and American iterations, uh, including a a very interesting copy in Wilmington, Delaware, held by the Bodleian Library. Um, It is the case that once the image has made it to Paris, perforce, it begins to migrate across the continent. The most interesting instantiation that I have found is this one from Geneva. And here you see not the ordered packing, but a kind of chaos on the decks. Um, And here you can see the sort of, it presents a very different sensibility, it seems to me. And these are much more individuals. Lithography, as you will all know, was invented in Germany in the very end of the 18th century and becomes extremely important reproductive means in Paris, in Germany, and in Switzerland uh, for, for the first decade of the 19th century. And here you can see what is possible by the change of medium. For here, these are not robots, but these are individuals. A woman giving birth below decks. Here, one touching her head, cradling her head. Another being the midwife as her breech cloth is cast aside and others looking on here heavily stylized but clearly Mm. produced to excite the sympathies Of those who would look on. Much more individualized the women are women, these are the possibilities of a different medium. And then almost every time a slave ship is mentioned there needs to be a cutaway diagram because the diagram of the ship becomes almost part of the canons of evidential argument. So here's a a handbill about an incident where a British schooner seized a, a slave ship but could not take the slaves on board because it didn't have enough water to keep them alive. But notice the prominence of the water barrels and the slaves sitting here, this forced sitting of the slaves and here the vigilante, and here again you see the possibilities of the medium. This is a bibliographical fact, the possibilities of the medium. And as the reproductive media change, we need to attend to how the very message is altered over time because forms affect meanings even as forms effect bibliographical and cultural meanings. And so now these are much more individuals than we had originally see. And the men much truer to practice are are shackled and the forced sitting is depicted and so on. And you can see this in a different way than you could see the originary image. And now we might even understand the source for Malcolm Bailey's uh, uh, 1969 painting. So here is the hole with the depiction now of the shackles and mirroring the layout, if you will, uh, taken from from Clarkson's 1808 publication. And again, the same. This becomes a kind of uh, a template for depicting the the slave ship in its full uh, image. But again, Note the difference here. These are individuals, and again here, New York publication in 36, done by lithography. So if we want to understand the slave ship as an image, we can't imagine it's one thing. It's many things and attending to its complex and rich pluriformity is part and parcel of the business of bibliography. Transmission history is not merely for textual analysis. Attending to transmission history is in part about the business of coming to a richer and more complex historical understanding as we answer what I believe is the driving question of bibliographical studies how did this textual artifact come to be the way it is? And so you see the Brooks even becomes the stuff of children's books. Isaac Taylor had already published Uh, two of these uh, travel books for children Europe and Asia and now he takes on Africa and you see how the Brooks has become a kind of a shorthand with the human presence erased and yet they have no more room than a man has in his coffin you may see by the plan of the ship how they lie numbers die almost every night from such close confinement and the suffocating air it breathes. This is a children's book, a children's book for tarry-at-home travelers. How are we to understand this as a cultural object? And then of course, in the summer of 1851, Harriet Beecher Stowe begins to publish serially Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in 52, it becomes a book after 40 serializations. It sells 300,000 copies in the United States of America in that first year, and a million copies in the United Kingdom. It is always a reliable doctrine that print breeds print. And here you see the Uncle Tom's Cabin Almanac out of London in the year after Uncle Tom's Cabin enjoys such success. And of course, what figures prominently as it must. And again, this publication from Manchester here. But notice the textual reference is completely effaced. There is no reference to the letterpress of the Brooks for now there is the cry of the middle passage here. And here, uh, the herrings in the barrel, the figs, more like anything else, the swarm of bees, no reference at all to the brooks per se, and yet the image is adduced and named as as the frontispiece, the cultural and moral imprimatur, What does it mean to study the efflorescence of an image? How are we to understand the work of transmission history over time in so many different localities, so many different distribution networks, so many different reproductive means to put this in the hands of a widely diverse body of readers. seems to me that there's something to be said for understanding the diffusion of this image of the Brooks. Its ongoing adaptation and adoption over time has given us a kind of remit for bibliography in miniature as we strive to understand how this image perjures and changes over time, we begin to understand something of the economic and political concomitants of the book trade at any one given time. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that looking at this image and scrutinizing it so carefully, understanding, if you will, the moral impetus that drove the men in Plymouth and in London and far beyond, urges upon us a kind of reflection about our privilege as those who study the printed artifact in time as those who inhabit some of the great cultural institutions in the world as this very library. But does our study of the image of the slave ship Brooks perforce also not enjoin upon us a need to attend to the realities of our own day? For after all, what is the business of humanistic study if it is not to make us more, if you will, enlightened? Perhaps by looking at what is true and good and beautiful over time with great discipline, ourselves to become a little more true, a little better, and maybe even for our lives to become a little more beautiful this may be embarrassing to you, but the reality of our modern world is that according to the best NGOs, 27 million people, most of them women and children, live in slavery today. It seems to me that if we take our vocation as humanistic scholars seriously, then we need ask ourselves now, in our day, in our time? How are we to understand the past? And how does that past teach us who we are to be? Thank you.